I'm Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the Mariner's point of view, port by port. In this series, we discover the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, Marilyn Monroe, dead bodies, and pickles. What do they have in common? But first, let me introduce our host, Mr. Scott Dodgson. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate the kind words. So we're getting ready to start in on the, the casket salesman, uh, which is a very personal story for me. And uh, hopefully, if we ever get enough time, we're going to make it into a nice little movie as well. So as you're sailing the seas a lot, and I know we've done a lot of story-focused episodes based on stories from your life and your experiences, uh, where does the inspiration for writing and storytelling come from for you? Well, it actually comes from, it, it comes from my grandfather and my uh, great-uncle. It uh, comes from a, my family as they were storytellers. And it was a rite of passage to be able to tell a story. And, and the irony of that is, is it, storytelling seems to skip generations. I think I was lucky enough to get the storytelling gene. My father, on the other hand, couldn't tell a story without messing it up. He couldn't hold an audience unless they were already drunk and unconscious. And, but my uncle and my, my grandfather... They could start stories and just, they could wind on stories for three or four days. Oral storytelling traditions have found a very cool platform with these podcasts. People tell stories and they do it in a sort of short story writer performance class. Uh, Real oral storytellers sort of start in one place, meander, take a path, take a fork in a path, maybe jump off the path and go over a wall. So there's this whole idea if you're sitting there listening to somebody that is a true oral storyteller, you could be saying to yourself, uh, when's he going to get to the point? Well, the point isn't to get to it. The point is what you're experiencing as the story is told. Now, I kind of go back to my grandfather. My grandfather was a very unique and interesting man. He was shot down over Germany during World War II and spent three years in a German Stalag. And during those three years, every evening, where possible, he would tell a story to the guys that were in his cells. And he told the same stories over and over and over and over again, but they were so exciting that the guys just wanted to hear it. It was sort of like their entertainment, TV, movie, radio, which was very big back then. My grandfather was shot down in a B-17 over Germany and spent three years in a German Stalag. In the barracks, almost every night, 
for three years, he told stories. He was such a good storyteller that he was sort of the radio of the times. We didn't have TV back then. We had movies, but radio was the key. So my grandfather honed his storytelling skills while essentially in prison. And he could start a story when I met him. Of course, I was very young and he had been, you know, he was already in his 50s. And when I met him, he could start a story on a Friday with a Budweiser, his favorite beer, a pack of camels, and cross his legs, run his hand over his face, and, and his face was sort of malleable, take a puff on his cigarette, and then start talking about something that seemed inconsequential, but it related to the entire story that he was going to tell. And literally, Friday through Sunday when we when I would leave and go home, you would be laughing the entire time or crying or experiencing some sort of emotional thing as he slowly unwound a story. And to this day, I pretty much believe that he made it all up as he was going along, but it didn't matter. It was enthralling. And all our family thought the same thing. Absolutely mesmerizing. Budweiser, camels, related to, let's say, sitting on the boat, cockpit, having dinner, having cocktails, telling stories. All of this is an integrated experience into what the mariner sees. It's also a way that mariners from very far in the past to today relate experiences from different ports. The cool thing is, is that like a Phoenician captain could be in one port and he could be told a story. So he'll take that story and he'll go to another port down the way and tell another captain that same story. And then that captain takes that story and goes over here and suddenly you have this chain of stories. They may change the content, whatever, it doesn't matter. They have all this chain of storytelling going on. Because that's the only way they could communicate. Well, as a lot of you know, the Phoenicians developed the alphabet. Because it was more uh, direct and more specific for them to relate what they needed to trade for up and down the coasts of the Mediterranean, of Africa, Northern Africa, the Atlantic Africa, and, of course, all the way to Cornwall in England. You're coming out of England with tin in 2000 BC. You could stop on the coast of France, okay, which was called Gaul at the time, and trade that tin, okay, for, let's say, wine or furs or... or different bone or whatever. And then you would take that and you would go. And by having this new alphabet that they could write out, that captain would know he doesn't need any wine. 
because there's a captain that's in Greece. He's totally loaded with wine. And through this storytelling chain, the needs and the desires were all being fulfilled. I mean, we have a supply chain today. This is how it works. You know, I need 15 widgets. I got 13. I'll get two from over here. Blah, blah, blah. Change. This is a great tradition in sailing. In fact, all the old sailors always sort of, you know, laugh. And as we've seen in cartoons and Robert Louis Stevenson's stories and all the rest, the old sailors, the old salts have, have tales to tell, you know, of danger and woe and and triumph and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And this tradition is very much alive. It is alive primarily in the local boating and yachting world. Commercial skippers have a limited amount of contact with people. A lot of commercial skippers, especially big ships, oil containers, gas, auto transport, these, these guys, they do their job back and forth with the boat. It's just like driving a bus for them. And then when they leave, they're gone. They go home. They're with their kids, their family. They may live in Colorado or whatever. I have, I have two friends that uh, they, they drive container ships and both live in Colorado. That tradition at that kind of higher level is, or larger ships, is sort of lost on us, except for maybe sea stories that are written. So most of the oral tradition for sailing and the adventure and what's interesting and culture and art and music and all the rest of this kind of stuff is usually at the cruiser level. Maybe the charter boat level, but mostly the cruiser level. People going, experiencing something, then relating their experience. You know what? I found this great restaurant where I could also get 30 weight motor oil down in Cabo St. Lucas. Okay, great. That gets passed up the chain. So somebody in San Diego knows, ah, I know where I can get 30 weight motor oil in Cabo St. Lucas and have a good meal to boot, which in most of the world is generally the combination of things. So somehow I got the storytelling gene. What I want to do is I want to say about Willard, my grandfather. He was the master. And when I knew him, he was actually having a hard time. He was having a hard time in the, with the idea that uh, the war, PTSD, all the rest of that stuff. So he, he lived pretty far out in upstate Pennsylvania outside of Scranton, in a house alongside a semi-deserted highway, state highway road, uh, set back, nothing but forest around him. And it was quiet. It was a nice place. It was a pretty place. A couple of dogs, which are stories unto themselves. But in any case, what he did was he got a job. He had to work, obviously. He got a job working for the Miller Casket Company and became a casket salesman. There are casket salesmen. 
And what they do is they drive around to all the funeral homes. And they have relationships with the funeral directors. And they sell them their caskets. So one summer, I was about 10 years old. The Beatles were just tearing up the Ed Sullivan show. And I went with my grandfather. I stayed up there for the summer. But I spent two weeks with him driving around, going to these funeral homes in, in northeastern Pennsylvania and southern New York. And Willard would tell me stories. So my grandfather, who was born in Scranton in 1922, he was a coal miner's son. He lost his parents early in his life to yellow fever. Wow, doesn't that sound ominous? And he was raised by his step-aunt, and we called her Grandma Nichols. And I remember her as a mean, crotchety, having bad breath, and having kind of a hilarious habit of allowing her dentures to fall out of her mouth while she talked. And then they would fall into her lap, and then she would pick them up and put them back in her mouth. And she'd get really upset if you laughed. But it was just one of those things because you could see the dentures working out of her mouth a little at a time as she talked. She's usually yelling at us for some reason. So when Willard was young, he would go and fill up a couple of coal cars. He'd go in and shovel coal into the cars out of the mine. That's how you did it. You know, you had to, you get paid for, not the time, you got paid for how many little, these coal cars you could fill up in a day. And he, being a strapping young man, would go up and fill a couple of coal cars right away and off he'd go. And then he'd go, you know, run around like a crazy person. And he later drove coal trucks from Scranton to New York. This is back before there was hydraulic shifting and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Is I mean, it was real truck driving. I mean, you had to manhandle these things. One of the stories that Willard liked to tell was his Mr. Pickles story. After he came back from World War II and came back home, he drove a truck, a tractor trailer, cross country. Couldn't sleep. So this was like the best job he could have. And one of the jobs, one of the trucks that he drove was for a company called Mr. Pickles. They made kosher dill pickles. And he would drive these giant kosher dill pickle, you know, the tractor trailer, and had these giant kosher dill pickle barrels in the back of the truck. And a big thing is said, you know, Mr. Pickles. So he would drive uh, from Pennsylvania to California, where he would drop the barrels of pickles off because they're you know they were good kosher dill pickles lots of garlic great tasting so he would go across the country do that and then he would pick up another load and drive all the way back so when he was in california he was coming out of barstow and he had a problem he had actually two problems the first problem was that he spent all his money 
all the cash that he had on fixing the truck. The truck had broken down and he had to spend all the money to fix the truck. And then to compound that, the order for the pickles, they denied the delivery, saying that they couldn't take the delivery of the pickles. So he was stuck with a tractor trailer full of pickles. It was broken. He spent all his money finally getting it fixed. So he decided to drive to LA to sell the pickles in LA, basically sell them by the barrel, a barrel at a time. This way he can get some money so he can have gas money to get back to Pennsylvania. So he was in a real thing. So he's driving down the road and there's this beautiful brunette, young girl, 16, 17 years old, hitchhiking. So he stopped and picked her up. And they got to know each other and she started to help him sell the pickles. They would stop at a restaurant and she'd go out and knock on the door and go in and talk to the owner and get him to get a barrel of pickles. And she was a tremendous salesperson. And they sold pickles from Barstow all the way down to Los Angeles. And then this is where she was, this was her final destination. So the truck was almost empty and they went into one restaurant and the owner said, sure, I'll buy the pickles. And they sold the last one. But he said, the owner said to this young girl that why don't you come and work as a waitress for me? Well, this young girl was Marilyn Monroe. And that's how she got from Barstow down to Los Angeles in my grandfather's tractor trailer, Mr. Pickles truck. This is a completely fabricated story. I believe that Mr. Pickles thing, the Marilyn Monroe thing, I don't believe. But he told it so many times that I honestly cannot disbelieve it. So he tells this other story about being at a VFW convention in New York City. And all his friends are sitting around, people that he had known in the, in the war. And, you know, they've got their medals. He won a silver star, by the way, and a purple heart. And, you know, had all these people around him. And he's telling the story of Marilyn Monroe, who at now, at this time, was a big star. She was a famous person. And, of course, none of the guys believed him. They said, like, you know, he could tell a story. It's a great story. But we just don't believe you. The speakers and the entertainment at the VFW that, that year, and I've looked this up, was Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio. Marilyn walked right in, saw Willard, went over, kissed him, and said, how you doing, Mr. Pickles? And she went off. And of course, that's, that's the verifier for the story. And Joe DiMaggio told my grandfather that, that she talks about the Mr. Mr. Pickles truck all the time. And of course, my grandfather was very proud but proud wasn't really his way. He was like, of course it's true. Of course I embellished the story. 
The question is, is did you enjoy the story? Did it make you think? Did you, did you have that moment of excitement? This is where he was a natural. And everybody guffawed and laughed. And they all wanted to hear the same story again. Tell us the story again. All right? And when people say, yeah, tell us the story again, it's sort of almost like they're, they're saying, we didn't believe the first time you told the story, and now we're going to find some facts, and we're going to, we're going to pick apart your stories and tell it again. Well, it doesn't work that way with oral storytellers. Because that story may end up being completely different. I mean, he told stories about my grandma Nichols, who wasn't my grandma. She was a great aunt. He told stories about her and about some of the things that she did and created a character called Mr. Rats, which is a grumpy old man. And they used Mr. Rats to to make fun of the guards in a German Stalag. Has anybody seen Mr. Rats? And they would go on and on, and everybody would play with a play with a name, play with a character, creating a huge character. But as a way for the men who were captured in the barracks to find an outlet, to find some sort of mental freedom. He once told me that for all the guys that were in those moments when he was telling the story, and for him too at the same time, they all could almost smell the apple pie cooling in the window. They knew who Grandma Nichols was. They knew who Mr. Ratz was. They could feel the smooth leather on Willard's 1936 Chevrolet convertible. They knew what it was like to sit at the Cat's Paw Bar in Scranton and order a cold beer. And they knew what the smell of the sandwiches and the sauerkraut. They knew what the taste of, of the pickled eggs and for those moments, they were able to escape their imprisonment. And this was the service that my grandfather did for these people. And of course, it was a service for him because he could think about these things. He could, he could escape with them. He could find more details to talk about. Like for instance, the cat's paw was called the cat's paw because they had varnished the bar. And a three-legged cat with only two paws, two pads on a paw, walked down the wet varnish and left an imprint. Who makes that up? So there's some truth into it.
So when I was 12, we were driving around on our little trip to all the funeral homes. And as a 12-year-old, the only thing I was really interested in was seeing a dead person. And I had real desire. I know it sounds a bit macabre, but hey, 12-year-olds are a bit macabre to start with. So we went to this one house, giant house. I'd never been in such a big house. And it was a it was a funeral home. And 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 Pop, who I called my grandfather, Pop, he knew the funeral owner real well. And in fact had served with his father, who had passed away. So we all had lunch, but while they were prepare, preparing the lunch, I got to go swimming in the pool. Now, this was an amazing thing for me to start with because this pool was as cold. It was fresh water, mountain water. I filled the pool and it was real cold. It's like being in a mountain spring. It was a mountain spring. It wasn't even being one. It was. And the funeral owner had two daughters. And one was, I think, 14 or 15 and the other, I think, was about my age. And we all played in the pool. We played games and we jumped and played catch and all the rest of the stuff. And eventually, uh, we got out of the pool because it was so bloody cold. And we laid on this giant flat rock. And we laid there on the in the sun on this flat rock and... And dried. It was so beautiful. I remember that. It's so beautiful. But as a 12-year-old, there are th certain things that you have little or no control of. One of which is unwelcomed boners. I'm laying on this rock next to these two little girls. I'm not thinking about sex. I'm not thinking about anything for the most part. I'm thinking about what's for lunch. And they start laughing at me. And they run away. And they're laughing at me. I was so embarrassed. I was never so embarrassed in my life. What am I going to do with this thing? I can't. I'm in a bathing suit. I can't. How am I, I can't. I'm hiding it. I'm not hiding it. What am I doing? I got to think of something else. You know, what's some baseball scores? Let me go through that. You know, all kinds of stuff. And then one of the girls, the older one, says to me, she says, come here, come here, come here. And there's this shed on the property. And they had been laughing at me, and I was feeling really down, and I was, like, very apprehensive. And she says, come here, come here, come here. She said, you want to know where we keep all the extra body parts? And, of course, I said, Yes. And my boner disappeared. And she said, we keep them in there. Well, right then when she said, oh, we keep them in there. And it's an old tool, tool shed. Dusty, dirty, no light. Except for light coming in between the, the planks and this, the roof, etc. So I knew something was up. I said, yeah, I'm a Philly kid. 
I'm not going to fall for that. But I went along with her because they were, she was being nice to me and somewhat, I guess, understanding. So she opened the door and I walked in the door, walked in and she closed the door real quiet behind me. And I knew, okay, where's the other one? She's going to jump out and scare me. Well, I happened to look over into the corner where there was a little bit of light and I literally saw an arm laying on this barrel. Then the arm moved. I bolted out of that thing. I almost ran her over and they were both laughing so hard because there was a hole in the back of the shed in which the other little varmint could stick her arm and lay it on the barrel and it looked like it had been cut off and it was a body part with an arm and a hand. And then when I was inside, she could see me and she moved the hand a little bit and that freaked me out. Then we sat down for lunch. And I remember Pop having a hard time trying to convince this guy about his caskets. He was making a big deal about caskets and how much they cost and the different names on them. And, you know, like they had the A series, the B series, the C series, the D series. And, you know, Pop ended up putting on different names. You know, they, they called the Alpha series or the Beta series or, you know, the Super Loved One series or whatever. He made up all these names and 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 we sat there drinking, you know, lemonade and iced tea and 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 eating and blah 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 blah. And anyway. So the point is is that we got in the car, we left. And he said, Well, how was the girls? How was the swimming? How was all that kind of stuff? And I told Pop what they did to me. I I don't think I've ever seen him laugh as hard as that. But then he gave me a couple of pointers on how to tell the story. He said, because I didn't tell the story the way I'm telling you the story. I just told the story from a hurt, angry, embarrassed 12-year-old who just had the, the wool pulled over him. So he explained to me that you've got to get people involved in the story. Here's how you would tell the story and you get people emotionally involved and blah, 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 blah. So that's how he told me the story. And that's obviously, it's how one could be successful as an oral storyteller. We had a wonderful time. And I, I really today remember driving around going to these different funeral homes, meeting different people. It was lovely. It was lovely. And, and I got to go to the factory and watch them make uh, caskets. There's a lot of skill involved in that. And the, they're beautiful inside. I mean, it's macabre because some dead person's going to be laying there. And that's the last you'll ever see it. But, you know, the pillows, the draping and... All the rest of it, it's it's really quite it's quite a thing. And I remember having the greatest respect for the the craftsman because Pop had the greatest respect for the for the craftsman.
And that just sort of carried over. So we were going to finish the vacation, his work, my vacation, by going to the cottage. We had a cottage out on uh, Lake Wallenpalpak, which is a huge man-made lake in, in Pennsylvania. And if, if I'm sure a lot of you know it, it's, it's also one of the best places during the winter to sail ice boats. And if some of you had seen uh, my blog, I have a picture of an, of an ice boat uh, on the cover. Pop had an ice boat that he had restored and uh, the boat had been built, I think, in like 1910. It was solid mahogany. Um, it was a heavy sucker, um, but it had a monster sail plan on it. And it had um, two people could be in the cockpit. A lot of ice boats, you can only have one person. But this had this was a cockpit with two people, and between the driver and the passenger, you could put your legs around like you would sit. One person would sit inside the other one, uh, inside the other one's legs, and and there were red velvet cushions that you could sit on and around the the cockpit almost like an like an airplane cockpit there was um red leather stuffed red leather so that you wouldn't hurt your shoulders and stuff so you had all the sailing kit contained in the cockpit itself so you had the one winch one side Another winch on the other side. One handled the Genoa and, and the other handled the main. That's it. And on this boat, there was like a bicycle bar. Okay. That sort of hung loose. Okay. That basically would move the front skate left or right. Almost indistinguishably left or right. It's a, it, was, it was kind of an interesting design. Mostly on an ice boat, you don't need that kind of control um, because it's all with the sail and the skates keep you pretty much going forward. And it was beautifully, beautifully varnished. And it was one of those great, beautiful objects that you look at, like we all look at, at certain boats and we go, wow, that's... Just absolutely beautiful. And this was absolutely beautiful. He had loved that boat. He had had that boat since before he went into the war. And they kept it up there in a garage. And my father uh, never liked sailing. But I was very, I was very keen on sailing. At that time, at twelve, I was just, I was all in at twelve on sailing, and and there'll be other there's other stories I'll tell about that. But anyway, we had this ice boat, and he he said this winter you can come up when the lake freezes, which it pretty much always did, um, and well you can take the boat out. So, getting back to the story of why I started this with the casket salesman was, as a 12-year-old, I wanted to see dead people. I wanted to see at least one dead person. 
what I got, the only thing dead I saw was, you know, a fake arm from a little girl. Well, my grandfather passed away, went to the funeral, and he was laying there in the casket, which, by the way, was the Model 10. It was a terrific, it was the top of the line. The Miller Casket Company gave him the best, which was really nice. And he was the first dead person I ever saw. But I didn't feel like he was gone. I felt like he was in a kind of stasis. Because in my mind, I had all of his stories. His stories permeated my youth. They still permeate my thoughts today. And I remember us sitting in the Blue Valley restaurant and hotel up in the mountains somewhere, I think in southern New York, next to some big giant pond. I remember him telling me that the only thing that people will remember about you, because eventually you're going to be forgotten. He says, is the stories you tell. And that's where you breathe the life. So now, the Mr. Pickles story with Marilyn Monroe, that story's been told by other people. It's morphed into many different things. It's almost believable. But that story is going to last. And this is the way one keeps their spirit alive and the way the spirit of the world continues to stay alive. And why it's so important that we have these opportunities to tell these stories. It's why mariners, sailors in particular, are so deft at telling stories and so interesting at telling stories and make this whole oral tradition something amazing. And it's such a huge part of our, of our culture, of our life. It's, it's, it's a part of our, what our future is going to be. Your grandfather tells your father a story. Your father tells you a story. You tell your grandchildren and children and great-grandchildren. And it goes on endlessly. That's why it's so important. And that's why the tradition in the marine community is so important to be able to tell a story. If you're sitting at the cockpit table, having a cocktail, you tell the Mr. Pickle story, you've made your day. But I'm going to get back quickly to the ice boat. The next year, the next winter, which I was 13 at the time, 
And I had, by the way, I had been in the ice boat. I had sailed the ice boat before with my grandfather. And I had sailed it solo when I was 11 and stuff like that. But the ice boat, my grandfather deliberately um, told everybody the ice boat was mine. He was leaving me the ice boat. So if anything ever happens to me, Scott gets the ice boat. Which was fantastic. So that winter we went I went up with my father. He took me up there and, and we were checking on the house and the cottage and um went out and I and I launched the, the ice boat. The lake was frozen. Um there were some people out on ice boats and stuff. And and we I was not the fastest ice boat out there, but I certainly could be considered one of the most elegant. I mean, you can go from zero to 60 in a heartbeat. You could sail for miles on a really on the lake if it's really solid frozen. Whenever I sailed the ice boat, thoughts of my grandfather dominated. Eventually, I actually gave the ice boat uh, to a museum in upstate New York. And I don't know what happened to it, but I still think it's there being worked on and varnished and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Because it was just with my life and the way my life was going at the time, there was no way I was going to be able to come back and, and go ice boating anytime soon. But throughout this whole experience, I kept practicing telling stories. And I hope through these podcasts that my practice has paid off and that you've enjoyed these stories. And a little on, a little on Offshore Explorer right now. Offshore Explorer takes all the elements of sailing of traveling from country to country. It takes all the elements. This is the storytelling element. And we'll talk more about stories. And other elements. You know, why, for example, there's the rudder, protocols, uh, engine maintenance, all sorts of different things. And we bring them all in and sort of give you a sense of, of the community, of the thinking in the community, of skills that are in the community. And at the same time, linking them to our culture and its development, looking from the past, like the Phoenicians, coming forward to where we are today and how the story operated. So those were some interesting stories about your grandfather, the casket salesman. How much do you think that storytelling was a coping mechanism for him? Oh, I think I think it was huge. I think it was incredibly important. I should say, too, that the way he told a story and the way people are taught stories today taught to tell stories today is really pretty different. His stories meandered. They went places. They were associative. 
So they would go from one thing to another thing to another thing and to another thing and to another thing. And, and they didn't have a point except for the actual act of storytelling. Now, today we have a lot of storytellers that tell stories that are like performance short storytellers, the very structured beginning, middle, and end arcs, the whole shoot and match. These old form of storytelling was meant to occupy a certain amount of dead space in their lives because they had no radio. There were movies, but not everybody went to see movies. Uh, they basically had to entertain themselves, either by song or whatever. And if you read um, a lot of the old uh, sailing stories, I'm thinking particularly of the Jack Aubrey stories, you'll find that they spend a lot of time uh, reciting poetry back and forth to each other, singing songs, uh, deliberately telling stories with a funny punchline. So people had to entertain themselves. Today, our entertainment is, is everywhere. So we don't have a kind, we don't have that, we're not building that skill set in younger kids to be able to tell a story that is both engaging and meaningless. We have all the, the <laughs> <laughs> we have the, uh, the sea chanties, right? The, the, the yeah. long, the long songs that tell a, a, a long story about something that happened in the past. And it seems like the sea and the ocean are important elements of song and literature in our history. You know, you have obviously, you know, Moby Dick, Treasure Island, you know, the, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> um, you know, so it seems like it's a it's a constant in our in our books, our stories, in our songs, in the stories that we tell. One other question that I had was uh, was about your grandfather, who sounds like a very interesting character, and and your your great aunt as well, who <laughs> you know talking about her her teeth coming out. I can still Did, yeah. I can literally still picture it and and I know I must have been 3 or 4 years old at the time when I saw that. I can still yeah. picture. I could imagine. So did your grandfather ever talk about some of his other experiences during the war? Once we had a family kind of a family powwow about our service in the military. Now you have to understand that he he won a silver star. Um, and was prisoner of war in Germany. And he won the Silver Star for uh, carrying his pilot um, after they were shot down and parachuted into Germany. Um, he carried his, um, his pilot, who was injured for 30 miles, avoiding the Germans. They were both eventually captured, and the pilot actually passed away. So that was his central war experience. Now... My other cousin, my uncle's son, uh, he was a Green Beret in Vietnam, and he had done a number of tours in Vietnam. Uh, my father uh, served in the Korean War and actually uh, was, uh, was in a lot of battles in the Korean War. Then my other uncle, he was in the Navy, and he participated in the only battle in the Aleutian Islands between them and the chap between the United States and Japan. And then, of course, myself and I served uh, also in Vietnam. 
And so the family has this tradition of uh, service. So we kind of all know each other or know something about our, our family's experiences. Uh, he only explained his situation in Germany once, and that was very briefly. Otherwise, he pretty much never said a word about it. Hmm. And when you were in Vietnam, did you tell a lot of stories? Uh, no. <laughs> only, only to officers and in reports. Uh, that was the only thing I, I ever did. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Tommy Ivisevich. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. Down in the South Texas streets of Laredo, I fell in love with a sweet Texan girl.